You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker. I'm joined with two good friends and a mysterious buddy. The first one, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Before we introduce our mysterious guest, who is behind a curtain like the Wizard of Oz, how's it going, you two? Good. It's good. All right. That. I see that uh, Stephen Stephen is lacking the mustache this week. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't even notice that. I didn't even notice that. Oh, he popped up. Reformed his upper lip uh, appropriately. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is phenomenal. The, I didn't even notice that. That's brilliant. Uh, so, what what made you lose that one there, uh, Stephen? Oh man, just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> just uh, too many people with too many opinions. <laughs> oh no, man, man, I feel so bad. Yeah. Man, at least I was. That's right. You all, you all were very supportive. <laughs> Never stopped well, me. <laughs> yeah, no, we're still going. It's getting <laughs> like trucked along. It's getting thicker and all that kind of stuff. Difference between me and you. Oh. Well, we've got a lot to chat about today. We've been on the horizons here, just wanting to continue to talk about vaccine and what's going on. There's lots of updates that need to happen. I don't know. I don't even sure how many updates we're going to get into today, because I think the biggest thing is we wanted to bring on someone to talk about vaccine hesitancy and just in true good fashion, pandemic podcast style, just talk about it's complicated and it's okay, right? So navigating this terrain, but before we get going, like usual, we always rely on your reviews. It helps us move in the ranks, helps to get this podcast into more ears and earbuds and all those kind of things. I have to do a quick caveat that uh, my wife is away right now. So my boys are mysteriously upstairs by themselves, randomly walking around the house so we could do this podcast watching. I just hear pounding. So if you hear me get off for a second because you run downstairs to scream data, I may have to get uh, go someplace. But just a little caveat. I don't know what they're doing, but I hear them running and that's a bad news right now. So my house will be a pit and there'll be things broken. But it's important that we continue moving with the podcast. So please leave a review. And if you can support us and, and, and uh, in any way, replace the broken glasses that are going to be done upstairs in a couple hours, please do so. You can do that at, at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast or one-time gift at Venmo or PayPal, all in the show notes. Okay, guys. So let's get started. I'm going to get right into this. We had a good briefing about this. Dr. Josh Williams, welcome to the Pandemic Podcast. It's good to meet you for the first time. I've heard great things about you from Mark. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Matt. And thanks to Stephen. And thanks to Mark for uh, doing the important work that you're doing, educating the public. I really appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit with you today. Mm, absolutely. It's great to have you guys on. So Josh, let's just start with this. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I don't know anything about you. <laughs> on. This is this is this is how much I prepare you guys. I'm like, so you're a doctor? <laughs> Literally, so this is the extent of my preparation. So please help. So Josh, tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, and and, and really let us know how did you get into studying vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, great question. So I'm a, I'm a general pediatrician, Matt. I practice at Denver Health and the Wellington Webb Primary Care Clinic, and I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado. And I've been studying vaccine hesitancy for about five years now. And what really launched my uh, start in vaccine hesitancy research was actually an interesting discussion with my own priest. Uh, I was a resident, so I was a, a tired trainee, and I was trying to do some projects around influenza 
uh, so pediatric influenza, children who are hospitalized with influenza, and looking at missed opportunities for vaccination. I made an offhand comment to my priest one day when we were chatting, hey, you know, yeah, I'm doing this project about influenza vaccines. And he said, yeah, you know, the influenza vaccine, you know, no one gets the flu shot. It causes the flu. It doesn't even work. Like, yeah, I, I don't usually get it. And then just kind of took me back. It, it struck me as an interesting comment. So I, I did two things. You know, the first thing I did was uh, convince my priest to get the influenza vaccine. And then the second thing I did was uh, I started looking into the intersection of religion and vaccination. And so a lot of my work has been around uh, religious roots of vaccine hesitancy, uh, historical instances of that, as well as empirical and other kind of research into that today. But I've also now started looking into vaccination disparities, determinants of vaccination equity, certainly being at Denver Health, that's something that I'm passionate about as well. And so over the last five years, I've I've done everything from going to the community and interviewing people to hosting town halls at churches, to even surveying parents of children and seeing how uh, their views on vaccines affect whether or not their children get vaccines on time. Uh, And it's been a fun, it's been a fun ride. And and I'm glad that now uh, some of the expertise I've developed over the last five years, we can apply to COVID vaccines. Yeah. No, first of all, I just want to say on behalf of me, I guess, and the rest of the world that maybe sympathizes with me, thank you for doing this because this is complicated for me. And I think it's complicated in general. And to be honest, I have went through my fair share of just ignorant and just just receiving vaccines and not even thinking about what what it may or may not do to drawing caricatures to people who are on the other side, right? Oversimplifying, they're like, oh, you're just one of those people. You're an anti-vaxxer. And then now because of COVID, I mean, I say this over and over, so I am literally a broken record. I only have like three things I can talk about in my entire life. And one of these things is this idea that this pandemic has opened my eyes to the reality of the complications of the world and this either or stuff just doesn't cut it. So just first of all, thank you for doing the research because I want to hear about this because I've, I, it's around my circles. I, I have people all over pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine saying anything that, you know, it's of the devil and that it's actually going to, you know, sterilize you by taking it to people who are reasonable or, you know, quote, reasonable, just trying to understand whether they should take it or not and has it been out to. So my first question to you is where does this come from, this hesitancy? Does, is there a history that we can trace to be like, okay, I can sympathize more of why people may be hesitant? Yeah, yeah, great question. And there is, there's absolutely a history of vaccine hesitancy, and it goes back all the way to the history of vaccination. And so if you think about vaccination, right, so we go back in time, early 19th century, you know, probably many listeners might have heard of Edward Jenner, a famed physician living in the countryside in England. And he's kind of got this little practice on the side in the countryside. And, and while he's out there practicing, he notices that all these dairy maids on the, on the farms around him seem immune to the, the ravages of smallpox. And he kind of wonders about that and, and thinks that maybe this, this disease that dairy maids are getting cowpox that could actually be transmitted from one person to another as a, a deliberate mechanism of protection against smallpox. And, and smallpox was, was deadly. It was contagious. It often caused permanent disfigurement as well as blindness, right? And so this was something certainly worth looking into if there's a way to protect people against smallpox. And so Jenner decided to take uh, you know, matter from a, a lesion on an infected dairy maid and transmit it into the, the son of his gardener, 
uh, James Phipps, mm. and see whether or not he could then de- deliberately infect James with smallpox a few weeks later. Turns out James resists infection with smallpox because he had cowpox. And the, the story of vaccination is, is born. Now, now, Jenner popularized smallpox vaccination at the beginning of the 19th century, but not everyone was on board, right? So, and, and there are lots of reasons for that. So first of all, you know, variolation, the precursor to vaccination, which is where you actually took smallpox from the lesions of people who had smallpox and you gave it to people who were healthy as a means of protection. Well, that was a, that was a lucrative practice for physicians. And so on one hand, you have physicians who are hesitant about vaccination. It's untested. It's not been seen before whether or not this is going to help. Um, and it's also eating into their incomes. There was a, there was a famous vaccinator back in the day, was, or very later, I should say, who was making 600,000 pounds a year equivalent uh, doing this practice, right? So you have physicians who were hesitant about vaccination based on what it was going to do their practices. And then you have people asking, you know, what well, well, we're taking something that was, was infecting cows and we're infecting humans with it, does that mean that people are going to start to, to grow horns? Are, are people going to start to look like cows? And so you look at a lot of the artwork at the time, right? People who are against this procedure and they're, they're really worried about taking something that was inside of a cow and injecting it into a human. And you have all these caricatures of people with heads that look like cattle heads or you know, horns poking out. And then you also even have religious individuals, you know, clergy saying, you know, well, well, God uses sickness and death as a means of punishing people and a means of kind of disciplining people. And so who are we to take that away as uh, as vaccinators, right? Who are we to take that away as, as you know, a way to discipline people and, and try to pretend to be God, right? And, and so there's a lot of kind of early things that played into to vaccine hesitancy right around the turn of the 19th century. Yeah, and maybe maybe we can talk first a little bit about the ways that that this vaccine and the new platform. Maybe Josh, like, how do you think a little bit about us understanding understanding the vaccine, understanding the platform, and understanding its safety profile, and some of the kind of the, and then maybe we can back our way into some of those bigger questions about how how that overlaps with you know the what was going on in Jenner's time. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have a new platform here and how it's been used kind of in the last couple podcasts. I had a pleasure catching up on those. But it's worth pointing out, right, that the, the vaccines that are being shipped around the world right now, or at least the Pfizer and Moderna ones, are using this messenger RNA platform. It's a new platform. We don't have the same amount of long-term safety data as we do have with other vaccines that have been around for many, many years or even decades. And so it makes sense that people would question putting mRNA vaccines into their bodies. You know, what is this going to do to me in five years or in 10 years as well? But it's also worth thinking about ways that other mRNA treatments or mRNA vaccines have been used in the past few years. And so one good example, uh, they've been explored as possible cancer treatments. So people with uh, untreatable late stage melanoma who get an mRNA vaccine to help trigger the immune system to start fighting off melanoma cells on their own and certainly not working, uh, perhaps thinking in uh, the same way as far as um, uh, generating a protective immune 
response against an infectious disease, but also giving us insights into the safety of mRNA vaccines and treatments over the course of several years. And so this isn't the first time that we've seen products with mRNA inside of them. And at the same time, we're going to have to continue doing our due diligence with following the long-term safety of these vaccines, just taking the short-term data that we have, but kind of looking to the future longer-term outcomes as well. Yeah. Do you think, you know, one thing I'm interested in, Josh, that I know we've overlapped on before and talked about a little bit is what it takes to get a sense of the long-term effects of a vaccine like this and sort of how you think about, particularly with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines and what you've seen in terms of their rollout and the data that we have so far. But just kind of getting a little bit of an understanding or wrapping our arms around what it takes to understand, you know, long-term effects of a new therapeutic like this. Yeah. So it takes a lot to understand the long-term effects. And uh, I've had lots of people ask me questions about, you know, Josh, tell me about whether or not this vaccine is going to cause me autoimmune issues in 10 years or in 15 years, kind of autoimmune issues broadly defined, for example. Well, it's a good question. It's, it's a question that we should be looking into, but it's also a really difficult question to answer. You know, take an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease, you know, a, a disease with an incidence that's already quite rare, right, in the general population. And now you, you want to try and study whether or not the vaccine is associated with additional cases of that disease. It's hard to prove causation there, uh, but maybe you can find a correlation or an association. Well, you have to look for many years to find the number of cases that you're going to be able to detect a statistical difference between groups. You know, I know that Stephen would know all, all sorts of things about power calculations and sample size, looking at some of his modeling that, that he's doing. But right to, to even conduct these studies, you'd have to be looking at tens and tens of thousands of patient charts and following those same people over five years or 10 years, and then accounting for all the tiny differences, all the confounding variables that could have happened to those people in that five to 10 years that you followed them to then try and make some sort of adjusted analysis to say, yes, we think this vaccine is associated with that one outcome or another. So it's, it's much easier to look at the short-term outcomes of swelling at the injection site fever in the next 24 to 48 hours and say, yes, we can give you a proportion percent. This number of people are going to have it out of 100 who get the vaccine. It's so much harder to do these longer term studies. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do them, but it is much harder to do. I am thinking also just to, it's how do you deal with, in my circles, we're like, come on, are you serious? Like, Ever since the vaccine was was really rolled out, this and X and Y and Z has been more prevalent in the U.S. You know, I, I get this a lot. Like, you know, you tell me that's just pure coincidence, right? It's just that every, you know, or autism, you know, which I totally know that's a whole other center of misinformation, I'm assuming, from what I read in a small level. But, I mean, help us unfold a little, help me understand the complexity of this in the sense of, like, how do I respond to that? Yeah, yeah. When, when I see those numbers, I'm like, yep, yeah, I think you're on to something. So why aren't scientists saying you know, let, let's, 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 let's slow down here. Let's slow down. Is it because there's money in the pockets or, you know, is, then I keep getting more and more pushback. And I'm I, to the point where I'm feeling like, I don't even know where to go now. Mm. I'm kind of lost. Right. Uh, how do I, how, how do we navigate that train when there seems to be a little tight, like in my mind, in my small world, not Steven's world, because you understand complexity because that's your whole forte. <laughs> but I just, I just, I want to stick with one plus one equals two. And that's about it. 
So how can we fit that in that framework, Josh? Oh, man, we're going to have to move past simple addition, I think, to, to like exponential math here. Um, yeah, sure. Which, yeah. which yeah, again, yeah, that's beyond me, but Stephen. But in any case, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the question about autism, for example, right? So people noticed back you know, 20, 30 years ago that has a, a number of vaccines that we're giving to children was increasing in the recommended schedule, that there also seemed to be an increase in the you know, number of children that we were diagnosing with autism. And so perhaps there's a natural question to ask, is there some way that the routine childhood recommended vaccine schedule is now leading to additional cases of autism, right? Now, that question is a really difficult one to answer unless you're able to look at specific parts of the vaccine or specific vaccines that have been introduced and do it in a rigorous way. And so, Thank, you know, thank God for Scandinavian countries that have these robust electronic medical record systems, right? So one, one hypothesis was, you know, thimerosal is thimerosal in vaccines causing cases of autism. And so you look in these Scandinavian countries for 10 years before the, the, the elimination of thimerosal in vaccines, and then 10 years after, and you look at the rates of autism in the general population. And these are studies that include you know, 90%, 95% of all the children in the country. And you're able to look at the rates pre and post elimination of thimerosal. You're able to make conclusions about uh, whether or not there was an increased risk. And actually, there, right, there wasn't. But I think it's important when, whenever you're kind of coming to vaccines with a hesitation, uh, you know, what, what the question might be, recognizing that it's, it's easy to kind of uh, generate those questions off the top of your head. It's much harder to scientifically and rigorously study those questions in ways that make sense to statisticians so that we can actually do the proper work of answering the question well. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. This is something, you know, I've been really uh, interested in this and sort of sensitive to these questions throughout the pandemic because we've seen a lot of scenarios in which bits and pieces of evidence might be knit together with a certain narrative that has outward potentially plausibility, but arrives at a conclusion that's actually not true. And, you know, we see the ways that kind of that evidence or bits and pieces of evidence might be used in order to tell a story that doesn't correspond with reality, you know, or, or, you know, more or less. And I think I've seen, I'm just interested a little bit in if you have any insights about practical ways um, of engaging people in dialogue about that, that isn't alienating or isn't, I, I think there's a lot of ways that that physicians, you know, tr- I trained in pediatrics, though I don't practice in pediatrics right now. It's a lot of ways that I think we can shut down dialogue very quickly or that we can, mm-hmm. you know, marginalize or further estrange groups that have real, le- you know, potentially legitimate, at least legitimate questions. So I want to think, you know, I, I'm curious about how you engage that in your own practice, in your research, things like that. Yeah. Well, Mark, I, I have so much respect for you. And I'm just uh, you know, so sad that you're not practicing pediatrics anymore. It's like just the biggest <laughs> strike against you. I, I think of you and I'm like, man, Mark's a great guy. But if, if only he... I know, like, what happened? I stopped caring for kids anymore. Well, it's, it's obvious. Like, oh. you, you cannot be a pediatrician with a stash, man. You just, you just that can't. That's true. So that is true. you, you got to make your choice and you choice. <laughs> well, but, but in all seriousness, it's a great question. And, and I recently wrote a, a review for a, a journal on, on how to engage with vaccine hesitancy in clinical settings. And, and I deliberately titled it Caring for the Vaccine Hesitant Family. 
right? And, and the idea there being that I, I think this is just another way in which we as physicians care for our patients and families is by having earnest dialogues with them about their genuine questions and concerns. And so one of the things I allude to in that article is, is motivational interviewing, right? And so motivational interviewing is this kind of, depending on which person you, you uh, listen to has, has various components to it. But, you know, let's say for the purposes of our talk today, it's got four different components to it. And the first one is partnership, right? You, you go into these conversations in uh, specifically not, not trying to play the role of the expert, but you actually go into these conversations as the role of the friend. Right, the role of the person sitting across the table having a cup of coffee, not the you know person wearing a white coat telling someone what to do. And so you're partnering to learn more about people's concerns, and you're using language like, "Wow, man, it just makes so much sense why that would be a concern to you." And I was talking to someone uh, this morning about COVID vaccine concerns she has, and you know, one of the concerns she brought up was fertility. Right, and she currently is unmarried. I presume that uh, would hope to have children later on. And I think her, her, you know, concern to me, right. It makes so much sense why you would worry about fertility and COVID vaccines. Right. So I think partnership is part of it. And, and then acceptance is another big part of it. Like you said, Mark, right. We're, we're accepting of our patients, of their families' decisions, of the parents' decisions, regardless of what decision they end up making, right? You, you need to detach this idea that, you know, your worth is wrapped up in whether or not you're vaccinating or not, right? Your, your worth is kind of independent of your vaccination decision. And I think in a polarized society, it's evil, easy to label people one way as, as you know, your, your anti-vaxxers, for example. I, I find that unhelpful. I think it's much more important that we reinforce with patients and families, hey, this this choice is yours. And at the end of the day, it's, it's yours to make. And I respect you either way. And then, you know, compassion, thinking about how, how do we have compassion on patients and families when they have genuine concerns? You've alluded to this kind of, you know, the, there's just a, a lot of information going around as, as medical professionals, we're trying to sort through it, right? Now we have lay people who are trying to sort through it as well. And so you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt that they're actually really trying to do their due diligence and trying to understand everything that's going on now. And then, you know, finally, one, one thing I like to do in my conversations is to, to let good ideas for vaccination actually come from the people who have concerns about vaccines, right? So just to take the conversation a step back from the actual vaccine we're worried about, just have people tell me more about what's important to them, right? And you'll hear things like, well, you know, what's important to me is like the health of my children and being an active family and making sure my kids are kind of growing and learning and developing in school, right? And so uh, this idea of evoking ideas for vaccination from our families, right? And, and just showing people how their priorities align with the public health benefits of vaccination at times, right? Oh, so I can see you're really concerned about social justice and the community's good. Well, let me tell you a little bit about herd immunity and how that works to benefit those in the community who can't protect themselves against pertussis or measles for whatever reason. And so I think there's lots of ways that we as providers can partner with families, demonstrate that, you know, they, they have this intrinsic worth and value independent of their decision and that we understand that and have compassion on them when they're making these difficult decisions. That's good. I, you know, 
I don't know if this is true, but you're talking about, you know, again, the complexity of the vaccine, the hesitancies. And Stephen, off the uh, off before we recorded, we talked about, well, it's not like this is Stephen's words. You were saying that, like, it's not like we're choosing one one thing over being healthy. We're choosing one thing over the over coronavirus, which has its own set of unknown realities and long term effects. And then I'm, th- I'm stuck in this middle situation where I'm like, OK, I have two complexities and how do I bite down on something like and 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 not fear either just not have complete fear or just not do anything because this is like a complexity for us like what do you do there's unknowns with this new vaccine there's unknowns with covid now i'm just scared i'm going to sit in my house in a bubble and cry myself to sleep every day until something happens but yet nothing really happens except for complexity continues to be and I, what i'm getting to is i don't want to make this a caricature but is this also something of an American like like difficulty of like, I I feel like in some sense it's a big issue right I there's there's real reasons to have hesitancy about vac- vaccines I also am in circles that say extreme things about vaccines that I just are way off the charts right and I just don't know like we have a tough time making decisions when things are complicated right it's a lot easier for us and because I can just turn my thermostat up to, to 80 in the winter and control my environment and make it simple in my world. But this is just a whole other world by which I don't even know how to step into. And let alone you were just talking about like, I don't even know how to really have that discussion when you were saying, Hey, just have compassion. And I will, I will, I promise I will have compassion because I want to have compassion, but I get nervous. I don't know where to go because like, the people are like, yeah, Bill Gates, he's secretly, you know, trying to sterilize the world through his vaccine. I'm like, yeah, I get, I get why you'd feel that way. You know, you know, you know, you know I, like, I, then, I'm, then I'm like, I know, I know, I know, Mark, you're looking at me like that. That's a cray cray situation. But like, I, I'm not even researched enough to begin to even articulate like, that's just insane, dude. Like, it's all I can say. Right. I do you see where I just this is why I get on my guard. Like, I don't know how to like nuance this stuff and like shake it off and say, like, okay, gotcha. I want to feel this. I want to roll with this. I want to enter into your world. I really want to help and provide the best solution possible. And it's like at the very beginning of, and I'll stop being long-winded at the very beginning of COVID. We talked about, it was hard to insert reason when there was, everyone was talking at each other. Right. And we couldn't really have an informed, good discussion, which then there are some consequences. And now I feel like we're having the same thing about vaccines. Any. Yeah. I was just thinking, that I hope that one of the other members of our podcast can solve this problem because I think it's the, one of the, you know, big problems right now in our society is how do we speak across these divides, particularly when there's such a high valence of question about which authorities do we trust and which authorities do we not trust where we're getting our information. And this has been hashed and rehashed in lots and lots of different ways, but it, it is, I think one of the key questions that the pandemic has heightened is about this, like, how do we trust our neighbor? How do we engage our neighbor? Mm-hmm. And I think you're asking that same thing, you know, and there's lots of ways that we can ask that question, but that's the fundamental question, I think, at the at the core of what you're asking. And I, I was hoping that the judge would have an easy answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I, I don't have an easy answer for you, Mark. But what I can say, right, is I think about vaccine hesitancy as a spectrum, right? And so you have maybe 2%, or 3%, of parents who are, who are refusing most or all vaccines for their kids. So the vast majority of parents across the U.S. are actually vaccinating their kids on time or, or trying to follow some sort of vaccine schedule. And so when you talk about you know, rumors of Bill Gates trying to sterilize America, 
that's what you said, uh, through vaccination, right? So that perspective represents such a small sliver of genuine, true vaccine concerns across America, right? What, what really represents the majority is the, the large number of parents who have or individuals who have real, genuine concerns and, and they want feedback from a physician, right? One of the most important predictors of vaccine see is a physician recommendation for a vaccine, right? When you look at studies like that, is that just comes, it comes back to that factor over and over again. And so one of the things I highlighted in that review I wrote is the importance of persistence, right? So for physicians, sometimes these, these Conversations can be really, really tiring, right? Really fatiguing to go in and, and try and, you know, learn more about people's concerns and be a partner and try and evoke their positive reasons, right? So motivational interviewing is really tiring. But I, I tell new residents when I work with them, like vaccine hesitancy isn't solved over the course of a visit, right? It's solved over the course of a relationship. And so the goal is... I want to build a relationship with you. And today, I, my goal isn't to vaccinate your child against your wishes. My goal is to get you to trust that I respect you and that I have your child's best interests at heart. And so one of the most satisfying things for me as a pediatrician is when I take a family where they, they really are close to that end of, you know, we're refusing all vaccines. I'm not going to listen to anything that you're going to tell me. And three to four years later, I get their child up to date on that. Vaccines, right, and and that for me is is largely representative of a change in dynamics in the relationship, right? It's about who you're listening to, like Mark said, who's a, that, that trusted voice. And so the goal here, I think, is trust. That's great, thank you. I, you know, to, uh, oh, Stephen, you have something, and then I have a thought just to follow that up. You go ahead. Stephen. Oh yeah, I was just going to follow that up too, but I, I appreciate that a lot. That, you know, it's like uh, so much of your response is rooted in uh, mutual understanding and narrative and, and, and going back to the way that you opened this discussion to history as well. I know that one of my frustrations and one of the difficulties that I often run up against, both as a scientist and as an observer of my fellow scientific community, is that one of the ways that we often try to gain trust is by talking about science and giving scientific facts and talking about safety and efficacy. Whereas I think oftentimes we would be much better served by, by really understanding the history of where we've come. And that, for example, in, in public health, like the event that really looms large in terms of hesitancy for treatment and also just hesitancy to, to trust public health and medical officials is the Tuskegee syphilis uh, study, for example, where there is this huge breach of trust between medical provider and, and, and patient. And so, you know, we can, we can talk about safety and efficacy all we want to, but if there's, if there are these elements in one's history, either one's cultural history or one's personal history that where, where the concerns are not rooted in, in fact, but in, but in trust and, and mutual understanding, then no matter how many facts we have, there's never going to be even the opportunity for dialogue there. So I appreciate you bringing that so fully into this mm -hmm. discussion. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think, again, getting back to that place of, of partnership, right? It makes sense why communities of color are distrustful of COVID-19, 
seems right now. We you look at surveys that have been going and going around for the last six months about do you intend to get vaccines and looking at racial and ethnic disparities by intention. And I'm sure as we follow for the next three to six months, we'll have data around racial and ethnic disparities by uptake, right? So getting to that place, it makes sense. You know, I, I want to hear more about your concerns. And and part of what I've done is go to the community and just ask people, you know, tell me what your concerns are. And and one of the, the most rewarding parts of that experience for me has been the thanks that I've had from community members who said it was so helpful you came and the first thing you did was ask for our questions, right? You didn't come in with facts, with knowledge, with a shiny PowerPoint presentation to try and convince us. You know, the first thing you did was you just say, hey, I'm Josh, I'm a pediatrician. Oh, tell me about your questions. Well, you know, what are you worried about, right? And I found that to be really helpful as, as both, you know, content areas, but also thinking about uh, what kind of interventions we could do to try and increase trust. Yeah, I love that. I think I think that's just such a great example of how humility can operate in the therapeutic relationship, not as a way of convincing people to do things, but actually as a way of opening us up and recognizing that there are things there are things we have to understand about our history as clinicians, our very deeply flawed and imperfect history, you know, as a profession. And that approaching with that humility first and that understanding and going into communities that way. It, furthermore, you know, not only is it good clinical medicine. But I think it's good science too, right? There's a certain degree to which the the humility of the true scientist has to be one of the primary virtues because that's how you learn things that you weren't predisposed to learn maybe at the beginning. And so I love the way that that, that interacts both as a personal and an, an intellectual virtue. You know, there's an overlap there. I I wanted to see, I think we're getting close to the end of our of the time that we'd allotted. Thank you so much for your generosity to be with us, Josh. I wanted... To pivot maybe one more question and to draw a distinction that I think is important and to ask sort of everybody's thoughts about, we've, th- we've talked a little bit about this vaccine in particular, we've talked about vaccines in general, and I want to bring it back to this particular vaccine. I know that I have people in my life who, particularly those who are essential workers, teachers or some, you know, in some sort of a person facing profession who are considering particularly in the second wave of vaccinations. And so they're trying to figure out, you know, how do I think they, they may be generally pro-vaccine. They may trust, you know, the process that this has gone through generally, but have some questions. And I'm interested in thinking and helping them think through, you know, how do they decide if this is something that they themselves want to get and participate in? You know, I can talk just briefly about the way that I'm thinking about it, but I want to give you, Josh, maybe the last word. And, you know, Stephen, if you have any thoughts, you can you can pitch into. I think it's it's an interesting and an important question. And one of the ways that I've been thinking about it a little bit is that I'm recognizing that we're opening up into sort of a, essentially a phase four trial of this vaccine. We have really good, you know, to date, as good as we can have both efficacy and safety profile data that I think has been established and accepted by the scientific community. And there's also a recognition that I'm by getting, I did get the vaccine last week, by the way, and by getting the vaccine, I'm it's in some ways volunteering for part, taking part in that phase four trial and recognizing that, yes, there, you know, can I say 110% that absolutely no adverse events are going to happen or that they're not going to happen to me? No, but I think that the risks out or that the benefits outweigh the risks for me, you know, in, in my particular case, and also that I'm willing 
in a certain degree to bear, you know, to bear a little bit of that risk myself, because that's what we rely on. You know, that's we, I've relied on that, that other people have stepped up to the plate and done the phase one, two, and three trials, you know, that other people have been unfortunate and had COVID and we've learned from COVID from their experience and from their bodies, you know, and that often also just aware of the fact that the bodies of those who've been, you know, most affected by this are also often people who are in, you know, lower socioeconomic status and otherwise marginalized populations, you know, people of color, and that there's a certain degree of, of humility, I think, that comes just from the recognition of of that. And so I just, you know, I, I don't think necessarily from my standpoint that there's a hundred percent right or wrong answer or that I could tell somebody at least today, yes, you should do it, you know, or no, you shouldn't. But that's sort of the way that I'm thinking around the, the question. And I did go ahead and get it last week. And so that's kind of where, where I'm at with things. So just wanted to kind of think through it verbally. Steven, I don't know if you have any thoughts and then maybe Josh, you can kind of take us home. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really like, so it's going to be months. I'm in an interesting position where I'm probably on the precise opposite end of the spectrum in terms of vaccine prioritization from Mark, um, where I, I will not even have the option to get this vaccine probably until sometime next summer, if everything goes smoothly. And so in some ways that choice is, is, is delayed for me. And that, that opens up a certain amount of, you know, I, I, you know, Matt, as you were saying that there's there's all of this complexity and in a way the unfreedom that I have to, to, to about choosing to get the vaccine is is freeing in a sense because I don't have to make that decision personally. But of course I I am a an epidemiologist. And so I, I do need to be able to sort of think about and speak about exactly these sorts of things, risks and benefits. And Mark, I think I've been thinking about it in a very similar way to you, where there are a lot of uncertainties still with with everything with with our existence right now both with covid and with the vaccine and that yeah what we're doing right now is is both something for our health ideally for our community's health and also for the, for the greater benefit of, of of medical knowledge and those are the those are the different axes that we're weighing this decision on from my point of view yeah i'm i'm really glad you both talked about considering this decision on on both individual levels and and also community levels uh, and and that's i think what what i'd end with is that I think it's easy to try and make this decision in a vacuum, right? It's, you know, we, we say, okay, what are the risks and benefits to me? And you try and, and read and do as much background as you can and you make the decision. Uh, but as a, as a general pediatrician and a safety net practice, you know, my patients and their families have been devastated by this virus. It's, it's killing their grandmas and their grandpas. It is forcing children into overeating at home because their parents are afraid to bring them out and let them exercise. It's causing significant losses in terms of educational achievement, potential for these children. The, the virus is just devastating these communities. And so everyone's calculus is going to be different as far as their individual risk profile and what you know is most attractive or most concerning to them about these various vaccines. Uh, but for me, what you know, vaccination has never been about just the individual. It's always been about the community. It's always been about herd immunity. And, and that's why for me, I, I got the vaccine this morning. I, I went in not just for myself. Certainly, it is going to offer me some protection. I hope. I hope. I hope I'm in that ninety-five percent. Um, but but I did it because I, I wanted to stop. 
I want the the devastation, the destruction to the patients and the families I serve to stop. And this is a small thing that I can do, assuming some of that risk, long-term safety to myself, in the hopes that uh, the people around me who are having so much suffering right now, that that might offer them a little bit of relief. And so I would encourage listeners who are wrestling with this decision, right? They're going to be wrestling with it maybe as healthcare workers or the next month or so, or, or maybe as uh, non-healthcare essential workers in the next couple of months, or maybe, you know, your timeline for making a vaccine is sometime this summer. But but as that time approaches, I would encourage you to think of the community, uh, the people like Mark was saying, who, who have had their lives disproportionately disrupted, even shattered by COVID, 300,000 deaths from COVID, right? But the disruption to our communities is just on a, a devastating scale. And so I, I would hope that that would come into the calculus as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate coming on. It's been hugely valuable, valuable to me. Yeah, I think we'll close on this. We if you want to leave a review, sorry, it's just a good, good, good ending. And I just, just encouraging people to take this, take this seriously. I know in my own life, there's been three, you know, like deaths within two degrees and it just hit home the past few weeks for me. And it wasn't until this podcast that you guys opened my eyes beyond my own reality that it doesn't just affect me. It's for the sake. And, you know, Stephen mentioned that oftentimes it's the younger population that has the best response. So pony up, I'm, I'm here. I want to help. And I, I really want to get over this and I want my kids. Thankfully, they're not overweight yet, but they are in little cages. And, uh, they, so they, we, they really want to get out of the cage. Uh, and I can't recommend so, that. To the listeners out there, do not put your children in cages. Yeah, that's it's awesome. not helpful. Not approved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not approved. But I did let them know that Santa was vaccinated a few days ago, and they were really excited so they could know that they could hug him if he if they if they saw him. And that's how much it's affected our life. Well, great. We'll end here. For those of you who would like to uh, leave a review, please do so. I hope you have a wonderful week, a happy, happy holiday, a merry and blessed Christmas, a happy new year. So thank you for listening, and we will see you all again next week. Take care, and bye-bye.